You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. What's the greatest quality of the best business builders in our industry? After putting together today's episode, I'm now certain it must be the ability to get the best out of people. Pat Ryan is a broking legend. He's the visionary who saw that globalisation was going to create the need for global brokers to serve the global companies that it would create. But it's one thing having a vision, it's completely another to be able to execute on it. Today, you'll get to find out how he did it. You'll meet Pat Ryan in a different context. Here, he's not standing at a lectern, giving a keynote speech, or being quoted in a press release. He's in direct conversation with me. We start by dissecting his latest major broking deal to merge RSG with all risks, and move through the art of buying and building broking businesses to consolidation and Marsh JLT and Elm Willis. Spitzer makes an appearance, and we go into business ethics and culture, his advice for anyone joining the insurance industry, and finally, what he would like his legacy to be. Listening back, what struck me was how much we laughed during our conversation. Pat has bought and grown hundreds of businesses, and this encounter proves beyond any doubt that he does this by putting people at ease and in a place of complete trust. In short, he knew how to get the best out of me, and he did just that, in the same way he's been doing throughout all his career. The result is easily the best interview of the Voice of Insurance series so far, and one that I think will stand the test of time for many years to come. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Pat, congratulations on the All Risk deal, another fantastic deal in a a very long line of big and strategic deals that you must have completed over your long career. Tell us a bit about that. And then I'd like to ask you whether you think consolidation in wholesale broking has now gone as far as it can go, or is there more to come? Well, thank you, Mark. And uh, the All Risk deal was a very interesting and exciting opportunity for us. And because it was all done virtually, it was really quite different than any experience I've had. But the All Risks company was a great fit for us. And we identified that at least eight years ago and um, realized that, and these were good friends of Tim Turner, who's my partner of the T in RT specialty. And Tim knew them really quite well and actually uh, identified eight years ago that, you know, someday and we were quite small then, obviously, we should really see about getting together with all risks. 
And I knew of them, but I didn't know them. And so we set about for me to get to know them better. So we had occasional meetings at industry events, always clandestine. And um, we got comfortable with each other. And we were looking to see about cultural fit. And I've always believed that you start with, is there a cultural fit? And if there is, then you proceed. If there's not a good cultural fit, then it doesn't make any sense, no matter how complimentary the strategy is and what the price is. But we really understood each other after these several meetings and knew that there'd be quite a good cultural fit. We, at that time, were the third largest U.S. wholesaler, and they were the fourth. But we were in different markets. We were very heavy in what we call Tier 1, which are the top 100 retail brokers in the U.S., and we were represented nicely in Tier 2 and Tier 3, which are Tier 2 is the next 100, and then Tier 3 after that. But they were really quite a bit more sizable in that uh, next sector. And that was quite attractive to us and to them because they wanted to have their brokers to be able to move up and deal with the larger retail brokers in the U.S. And, of course, we wanted to expand into the many thousands of clients that they had and get a much stronger position in what you would call sort of the mid-market wholesale business in the U.S. So from a strategic point of view, it was really quite effective. Additionally, they have a very strong program business. And I've always liked the program business. It's uh, something that we did a lot of at Aon. And people often call programs MGAs or they call MGAs programs. But programs to me are especially industry and especially product or a combination of both. And they have 36, they have 36 discrete programs. And RSG has 22, what we call MGUs, MGAs, which are not specially, some are specialists in an industry, but some are well beyond just one industry. Some are single product, but some are multi-line products but there's sort of a different underwriting format. But we thought that that compatibility was really very, very important in that carriers that worked with them described them as the most innovative program company they'd ever seen. And innovation to me has always been a real goal in building brokerage businesses and a real differentiator. And so I was very attracted to the fact that in the marketplace, they were viewed as the most innovative and they started a lot of these de novo. And um, to me, that was impressive because the capital investment, obviously, is a lot less generally than when you make an acquisition. But it shows the creativity, the innovation. So that was a wonderful fit, plus expanding into the, into the broader marketplace. Do you think that deal is the end of consolidation? So when you first met, you were number three and number four. Where would you put yourself, the combined group now? Well, we measure it just on property casualty because we're not in the benefits business, we're not in the life business. Yeah. So just comparing property and casualty, we're very close to Amwins, who's been number one in scale, and I would say probably broader in scope. But in terms of scale, I believe, but we don't know for sure, that we're growing faster than they are. So let's say we're tied for one or slightly below number one at number two, but by year-end 21, with the first full year of consolidation, I think it'll be pretty clear that we'll be the largest P&C wholesaler. 
Amwins has a very nice and quite sizable benefits business. So when you add that in the aggregate, they would be larger. So to the second part of that question, do you think, is that consolidation done or is consolidation never done? Well, consolidation is probably never done, but it is certainly done in terms of anything very large, buying something else large. There are two sizable U.S. wholesalers, both of which are headquartered in California, and I've never been inclined to buy a business with a heavy concentration of California business because employment contracts for competitive issues are not enforceable. So maybe someone will, large will buy one of them, or maybe they'll both get together. If they both got together, that would be sizable. There's a, a wonderful company called Burns and Wilcox, which is quite sizable. Just in, They're principally in the binding authority business, SME sector, but that's a sizable business that it's possible that um, the three of those could get together and then they would be a meaningful scale competitor. So there is that left to be done. There are hundreds of boutiques in the U.S., boutique wholesalers. So one of those larger companies could start buying a lot of small boutiques and get scale. But it's not likely that there'll be a large fourth, but it could happen. And when I say consolidation being done, do you think it's done for you? Do you think you've built every capability that you feel you would need or or is there's always some new boutique coming along because I suppose the world's always changing. There are always new insurance products and requirements. We're always looking for businesses that bring a differentiator. As you say, there are some wonderful boutiques and we've been able to attract some of those into our company where they, for example, have a, we bought a wonderful company that specialized in environmental. It was a wholesale broker, but they had a different line slips that gave them some differentiating product. So we'll always be looking for those kinds of opportunities, all with the goal of improving what we offer to our clients. So they're out there and they'll be newly created. And do you see yourself more as a business builder rather than a consolidator? Do you feel that when you do some M&A, when you do acquire instead of growing your own, do you feel that you're always filling in a gap that you had? We try to avoid just an opportunistic acquisition. We did that at Aon as well. What we mean by that is it really has to be strategic. It has to improve the overall offering to our clients. When I say opportunistic, it's, you could view it as it's just a very attractive price gives you more scale, but you don't need that. You don't need to make an investment of size to get more scale, but the numbers are so attractive. Well, we have obviously a finite amount of capital. And so as part of our overall strategy, we have ruled out anything opportunistic. So as we would see strategic opportunities to enhance the value add to our clients, we'll always do that. But to your question about being a builder or a consolidator, some of my friends in the industry like to kid me, and maybe they really mean it, that I'm really more of an investment banker pretending to be an insurance guy. But I, I don't see myself that way. I see myself as a business builder. Aon was started from scratch with a single MGU and then built over time, over 40 years, with a heavy, heavy concentration of consolidation in the 90s. So people thought, well, he's a consolidator, but they forget all the brick by brick building that was preceded that. And so I, I feel myself to be a builder. And I think that's true with Ryan Specialty Group because we've started a lot of business de novo and we've hired a lot of people to bring talent in. So we've always strive and have achieved 
higher than average organic growth and then blending it with inorganic growth through M&A to get very outsized rates of growth. So as you watched what happened at Aon, we were always had very strong organic growth. Even in the toughest of markets, we had organic growth that was above the competition of scale, anybody that had size. But then we blended it with this inorganic strategy. And I believed in that at the time. And I believe in it now in Ryan's specialty group. And I continue to believe that for the future. We have tremendous opportunities to grow organically. And the way you create value to the investors and comfort to the lenders is you grow organically and you expand your margin. So value creation in the brokerage business is just directly tied to not overall growth, but organic growth, real, real organic growth and margin expansion. And when you do that, you create unusual value. And at the end of the day, we're, we're in business to serve our clients. We're also in business to reward our investors. And so there's not a conflict there. In fact, they're quite mutually beneficial. So I'm definitely a builder, but I look at today's acquisition as tomorrow's organic growth opportunity. So a very big part of that building and the inorganic building at Aon was building a global network and consciously building a global broker. At RSG, you've perhaps kept your ambitions more in the US, but do you have a wider ambition to build a global wholesaler? That's a very interesting question because if I were to answer yes, which I will, it would be different than the US because the US obviously has the excess and surplus lines market where wholesale is a really defined marketplace. And that's where we excel here in the US. Certainly London has a wonderful wholesale market. We've chosen not to be a London wholesaler. And the reason for that is a few reasons. One is that we were concentrating on the US. But two, as we looked at the UK and Europe, we looked more at setting up managing underwriting facilities an actual trying to repeat the wholesale business of the U.S. Now, we could do that by owning a London broker, and there's certainly a great history for the role of a London broker, but we've chosen not to do that and to concentrate on differentiating ourselves through managing underwriting businesses. So you'll see Ryan Specialty Group growing more in the U.K. and on the continent of Europe, but with managing underwriting facilities. And there is the potential of playing a role that in this country you would possibly call an intermediary that just provides access to market. That is a role that I could see that we would play in both UK and in on the continent as smaller brokers need access to markets that they don't have enough volume to warrant the attention and the relevance to the larger market. So that's a form of consolidation that certainly we're looking at. Before we get to the next question, I'm here with Zoe Bolton, the founder of Actuarial Headhunters, Bolton Associates, who have kindly supported this podcast. Zoe, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about Bolton Associates and what you can do for our listeners? Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be supporting you and the Voice of Insurance. Bolton Associates recruits actuaries and analysts specifically into the general insurance market. We do not deviate from that. We work with actuaries across the industry, be they 
chief factories, CROs, CFOs, pricing, reserve and capital modelling, and the juniors looking to break into the market. This is what we do. If you know an actuary, we've probably spoken to them. We've all done this for rather a long time. Bolton Associates collectively has over 100 years of experience of this. And with the opportunities now in the MGA sector, insure tech, data science and the startups, we've never been busier. If you're looking to expand or establish your actuarial and analytics offering, you should be talking to us. At Bolton Associates, we aim to be part of the market and friends to it, so we can offer our clients a real-time view of the actuarial landscape. Personally, being that advisor, startup, environment, etc., is just the best part of my job, and the network is really working for that. As I said, we're, we're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So any actuaries, hi again, or companies looking for one, do get in touch. We're all working remotely, as everybody is. The market is busier than ever, and fingers crossed, let's hope we can all get back to EC3 sometime soon. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. And let's get back to the podcast. Pat, a huge amount has been going on in the wider broking world and consolidation, obviously, on the back of MMC and JLT's deal, and now the announced and agreed and now approved by shareholder Aon Willis deals. That's really made a big movement into for most players to be moving to make the most of that opportunity strategically, in particularly in reinsurance, is where we've seen most of the fallout from that so far, or certainly from the strategic movement of other carriers with ambitions in reinsurance. A reinsurance broking is something you know a huge amount about, and it's the ultimate wholesaling, I suppose, isn't it? I'd love to have your take on that. What do you think is happening there and what's likely to happen? And also, is it something that RSG would ever be interested in doing if it was able to? Well, RSG will not be a reinsurance broker because we don't want to compete with our clients. So we have very strong relationships with Aon Marsh, Willis, we did with JLT, Lockton, everyone but one that's in the U.S. reinsurance broking market. It's a great business. I love that business. But I also understand that you have to pick out your niches. And I've always believed, Mark, that You can't build a viable business by competing with your clients. It just doesn't work. So we've been very diligent on avoiding that. So we wouldn't participate in that consolidation, nor would we ever participate for the same reasons in the consolidation of retail. I mean, I could have gone into the business post-AON of doing another retail consolidation. It was 010. It was there to be done. Many have done it. Some had started just barely started at that time, and some started after 010 and have built very sizable businesses. So there's no doubt in my mind that I could have done a roll-up and built a very large, new, newly created retail broker in the U.S., and for that matter, globally. But I didn't want to do that because I saw, first of all, I didn't want to compete with them. If I would have competed with Ann, I would have been competing with something I worked 40 plus years to create and build. And that's just not in my nature to do that. They're my friends. And when I retired from there, I said, I'm not going to compete with you. I'm not going to be a reinsurance broker. In fact, you're going to become a very large client of ours because I saw the opportunity to consolidate and build a different, a differentiating business in U.S. wholesale. So I would never do that. But I'm not surprised at all that that consolidation has taken place with Marsh buying JLT and Aon now, I hope, close to the final stages of the Willis transaction, because they both made a lot of sense to me. It's all about serving the client. It's all about being able to differentiate yourself with serving the client. And certainly Marsh by bringing JLT into the Marsh family 
added great value to their clients. Geographics, lots of scope expansion, scale, but a lot of specialties and a lot of wonderful talent. Now, when you do a large transaction like that, some people leave, but that's just the nature of the business. But most stay, most stay. And I felt all along that the Ann Willis deal made a lot of sense. And I think that's going to be an excellent merger. Was that ever a deal that was, would have been in your mind when you were really that that stage in the late 90s and afterwards really building that Aeon? Was it ever on your fantasy wish list of, can I buy Willis? Had you yes. ever thought of it? It was, it was very much on my, it wasn't even a fantasy. <laughs> um, 98 and 97, we had done ANA. In 97, we thought we were going to do J&H, and we were very close. And Marsh, Jeffrey Greenberg was the CEO, did a smart thing and convinced the J&H people that whatever Aon offers you, we will top. And they got it. And it was a fantastic acquisition for Marsh. And there was Willis sitting with a low market cap, lots of talent, lots of really great specialties, great history. And I had actually tried to buy Karuna Black back when Willis bought Karuna Black in 1990. And we made a competitive bid, but the um, Karun management was committed to not sell to us. It was a goal of theirs not to sell to us. And Willis topped it, topped our offer. And um, I wasn't going to get into a bidding contest because that just isn't the right way to buy a brokerage business. And if the seller doesn't want to sell to you, they can contaminate the population enough that it puts you at risk. That's an inappropriate risk to take. Well, fast forward to 98, and along came Henry Kravis. And I saw his offer, and I looked hard at it and decided that we wanted to go for it. But I knew that the sellers didn't want to sell to us, but I was willing to be aggressive. But I checked with the people who were funding a very inexpensive preferred that they used in the structure. And there were several U.S. PNC companies. And I didn't know the terms, but I found out the terms. So several of these companies were good friends. So I called them. I said, what are you guys doing keeping it from you? And the economics were such that KKR only had to put up, I think it was 300 million U.S. for a billion six deal in equity because they got, I think it was 500 million of a very inexpensive preferred with no equity rights, no warrants. And I said, there's no way we can compete with that. But yeah, we wanted Willis. It would have been a great addition. Would have been a lot cheaper then. <laughs> Time changes everything. <laughs> and if you were the competitive regulator looking at uh, uh, Aon Willis today to produce the undisputed world leader in broking across large swathes of the insurance value chain. Would you wave that through? No problem? I would wave it through for sure. Because you have to look at the law and you have to look at the practicality, and I'm sure they are, of what are the results of the merger. Are they anti-competitive? They're not anti-competitive. The insurance industry is one of the most competitive industries in global economies, and it will always be that way because there's lots of capital that wants to come in on a continued basis in broking, startups, in buying existing property casualty carriers or 
for that matter, multi-line. And additionally, uh, new capital coming in to compete. So there's no shortage of competition. So it's not anti-competitive at all. In fact, I think it's like the Mars JLT was good for the market, good for clients. I think Ann Willis is as well. So I think it'll go through. It should go through. There's no basis in the U.S., but I don't think there's any basis in the EU to keep it from being approved. It's a natural evolution in the industry. And all you have to do is look at, Mark, what's happened in the last five to 10 years in retail broking. And there are, I think it's eight companies that are a form of consolidation that are now over a billion of revenue. And I always felt when you got to a billion of revenue, you're a big boy. I can't say big boy anymore, but you're a big person in the industry. And so there's significant competition from these consolidators. And then the reinsurance broking business, you can watch it in the mobility of reinsurance talent. These boutiques are strong competitors to the large three. Proof of that is the talent that's moving from larger brokers to boutiques. So I just don't think that you can make a case that it's anti-competitive. If anything, when you do a large acquisition, there's a risk, a flight risk, and you always have to evaluate that. And I'm sure that the management at Aon and very astute people, Greg Case has done a great job, have evaluated that, knowing that there'd be some talent that would move, but recognizing that the companies together bring greater value add to the marketplace and to the, to the clients and the prospects, just as when Dan Glazier did JLT. So do you think that the prospects for that second tier of reinsurance brokers is very strong, would you say, even though there are many multiples smaller than the big two, as will be the big two when Aon Willis goes through? In reinsurance broking, you need the technology. You have to have the intellectual capital and talent. It doesn't have to be large numbers of people. In retail broking, you need large numbers of people. Wholesale is much different. It's a much smaller workforce, but you need the differentiating intellectual capital in the form of people. Additionally, you need the technology to be able to do all of the analytics, the data analytics. But that's available. It's available to purchase, but it's available with all these bright tech people who can come in and do that in a relatively short time. It's not their models to follow now is what's needed. So all these boutiques are in a position. I don't know them well enough to know if they have it, but I know that some of them do, and they'll certainly be competitive that way. So yeah, I mean, they don't need the premium scale. They need enough to be efficient, but it's really more the talent that has the relationships that has the intellectual capital. And really, would you say that that the leverage from insurance into reinsurance, you know, the idea of, you know, being the big producer of business into a carrier and then therefore expecting reinsurance out the back of that same carrier because it's kind of your business. Does being nimble on intellectual property outweigh any of those other considerations? Not only outweighs it, but it destroys the myth. And I do believe it's a myth that if you give a carrier a lot of direct broking business that you get reinsurance as a result of that. A, that's against the law. It doesn't happen. I remember years ago, without naming names, we had a predecessor named Dan with the same company, 
as we were building it. We had a small reinsurance broking business, and I hired a really talented guy, and he got poached away by one of the large retailers. And I was unhappy because we had a fledgling business that had a great future. It turned out to be fantastic. But he got impatient and he got wooed away. And he told me the story later that they went up and down the East Coast, he and the CEO of that large retailer, and said, you know, we give you all this business, but we want our fair share of the reinsurance. And they actually told him to get the hell out of there. That's not how we do business. You got to earn the business and not to cloud this conversation up. But when Spitzer went after insurance broking business, he tried to get Aon on what's called tying, tying retail to wholesale. And we fought him hard because we'd never done it. We had to prove that we, we didn't tie. So that, Mark, that's a myth. To get reinsurance broking, you have to earn it. You just, if you want reinsurance business, you have to be good at placing reinsurance and structuring it and getting people good deals on their insurance. And, and, and the advisory, the advisory role is absolutely critical. And that's part of what you just said, the structuring. So I, I really do believe that anybody who can solve that riddle of how to get the intellectual capital in enough quantity can be a significant competitive force, which is one of the reasons why I believe Ann Willisteel will get approved. Talking about that consolidation, there was a time when the biggest insurance brokers and global insurance broking groups also owned substantial wholesale broking operations. Do you think that would ever be a time when the big three or big two, as it will be then, would ever get back into the wholesale broking? Or do you think that would be too much? Because you said you won't compete with them. And do you think they'll come and compete with you? It's possible, but I would say not likely. And the reason isn't whether they'd want to compete with us or not. It's frankly that it's not a smart thing to do because they're not going to be able to keep the talent, attract the talent. Marsh sold Crump, Willis sold Stuart Smith, and we had not sold Sweat and Crawford. And, and the Sweat and Crawford brokers were begging me to sell them because they said, we can't get into these other clients because we're owned by Aon. And they don't want to give Aon their records and they don't want to feed their competitor and make them stronger and please sell us. And I studied that hard and it was just clear that that conflict was holding sweat way back. And I decided that we should sell and that a retailer, a large retailer, didn't belong in it because you're not going to get the consistent volume or any volume from your major competitors. So you're not going to keep the talent. The talent just doesn't want to work on captive business. They want the opportunity to expand. But very importantly, the carriers want a wide range, a diversity of specialty business, higher risk business from more than one broker because they're saying we need the spread, number one. But number two, we need it produced by people who do this every day. And that's where the people that are the large wholesalers, true in London, true in the US, have the advantage. It's like going to a doctor. Do you want to go to a doctor for an operation and he only does two a year? Or do you want to go to a doctor who does 3,000 a year? Everybody wants to go to 3,000. It's the same principle. So if you come into a business because you've got some of that and you can bring it in-house, that's not a good enough 
strategic reason to do it because you're gradually going to erode the quality of people who are going to be placing that business for you. So you're not going to be as competitive. And secondly, you're not placing it in the markets where you're giving them enough, going back to the doctor metaphor. I'm going to change the subject now completely. Um, I think that is a metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> if you want to place a fish farm, you might you, you probably should go to a fish farm specialist because you probably only got two. There are never more than you know. There's never enough fish farms or enough helicopters for you to any be. You've only got one decent account in in your area, and so they these things naturally aggregate, don't they? That, that's just the way they go. And someone becomes the expert. That's another. It's another thing the the regulators have to look at. There has to be enough scale to be effective at that. Last year, the Business Roundtable signed up to a, a new, let's say, softer form of capitalism that stated aim of serving multiple stakeholders, which included employees, suppliers, customers, and wider society as a whole, and move away from that orthodoxy of just seeking shareholder returns. What's your personal view? Well, I thought they were late to the game because, without sounding self-aggrandizing, we had lived that all throughout the creating and building a man. We did it because we felt that that was our responsibility. I never believed, ever believed, that the only thing that matters is what you deliver to shareholders. Now, what you deliver to shareholders is critical, but you deliver more value to shareholders when you are a part of your community, when you are a part of helping in terms of not just the community, but different social issues. And why do I say that? I say it because we're in the people business. All we have are people. The right kind of talent wants to work in a company that they're proud to work for. They want to work in a company that is more than just the bottom line. They want to work for a company that has a responsibility to their own people, but to their community. And so it's good business. At Aon, we always had and we have that at Ryan Specialty Group. We have employee groups work together on societal issues, different illnesses. We used to have 5Ks, and it's a bonding experience for people. It's the weekend, and they're not working, but they bring their children, and they get involved. They bring their spouses, and people just feel better about themselves, and they feel better about their company. So I've always believed that you get a better bottom line by being socially responsible. I was appalled a number of years back, let's say in the Gordon Gecko days, when a very prominent financier, owner of companies, made a speech to a business school and said, you know, it's blankety blank to do anything in the community. You have no, you have no social responsibility. You have one responsibility, and that's to the bottom line of your shareholders. And all these students stood up and cheered them. And I thought, this is terrible. That's dead wrong. Well, thank God, time has passed and evolved, and people recognize that it's way more than that. So I never had to sign one of those things. We were doing it from the beginning. And I'm not critical of the business roundtable, but I do think that that was late in the game. Even if your motives are not actually altruistic, it's, still good for, it's better for business anyway. Well, I don't... <laughs> You probably won't do it if you don't have any altruism in your body because you won't believe that it's better for business. And people would see you're faking anyway, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's one thing you can't be when you're a leader is a fake because you're found out quickly and 
people won't work for a fake. Good, good people. Oh, quite right. Okay, Pat, here's a bit of a fancy question. So if you were 30 again and you could have any broking job, except I'm going to bar MMC, Aon Willis, or of course RSG, where would it be and why? It's really a way of asking you what's exciting in the world of broking at the moment. Yeah, I, I would, I'd like to answer that, the question that way. First of all, I'm extremely bullish on the future of broking and frankly, the future of the insurance industry. And I've always told young people, come into this industry because the opportunities are unparalleled. No matter what you're interested in, is there's something within the insurance sector that provides that opportunity. But I've always said that look for a specialty that you're interested in. You know, maybe you're a car buff, so specialize in, in motoring. Maybe you're um, an aviation buff, aviation opportunities. Find something that you really, really like and get to be an expert in it. Focus on maybe it's just you want to be an expert in property, either as an underwriter or a broker. Once you develop that specialty, you are employable forever. Talent in the insurance industry is never unemployed. Even if their own company gets in difficulty and has to lay people off, there's always a demand for that talent. And so developing that expertise. So back to the boutique opportunity. If you look at a larger company and you say, well, there's not that opportunity, but you know, I'd really like to go in to a smaller firm and I've developed this ability, say professional lines. With that ability, you can make that company into a strong specialty lines broker. So rather than pick a individual broker, I would say study the industry and study a specialty and then look for that opportunity. And people have done that. I just got a hello from a, a woman now, but was a young graduate student graduated from college 20 years ago that I met at a university function. And she was graduating and didn't know exactly what she was going to do, but she's a very highly talented person. And I said, well, you should come down and meet with Aon because she wanted to be a consultant. And I said, uh, as an insurance broker, we have a lot of advisory roles that we play and that's consulting. And you should come and look at that. She did and she got into professional lines. And she did great at Aon, but she moved on to another firm because she saw an opportunity to build a business in professional lines. And then she's done that and she's very prominent in the industry. And she was passing on, thank you for telling me about this credible industry and opportunity. So I think it's more finding what you're really interested in and developing that interest and then finding the place to apply. This will probably be my last question, Pat, and probably fitting that it be so. What would you want your insurance legacy to be? If there is an insurance pantheon, you're going to be in it, Pat. What would you like the inscription to say under your name? I would want to say that he was a person who believed in people being the differentiator and that he believed in innovation to keep the client current with all the dynamic changes that go on in our industry. And it is the dynamic. And when you bring people together, and I'd like to be known as having established the culture to empower people and to let them optimize, but always working on behalf of the client to innovate, to solve problems for the client. And my legacy to me um, is most important when I see people that have come into the industry who knew nothing about it and who developed these talents 
but also a sustainable culture. So the founding company of Aon was called the first Ryan Insurance. And the names would change as we progress, but that founding company has been sold three times. And the last time it was sold for 3.1 billion. And the buyers invited me to a, a meeting and they thanked me for the culture because the culture is still extant 50 years later. And that culture was the culture of Aon, and that's still in place. And that culture is the same at Ryan Specialty Group. And so I believe that those cultures are what build great companies and form the legacy. So it's empowerment of people, it's client centricity, it's approaching everything with integrity, it's teamwork, it's all these kinds of values that everybody knows, but uh, sometimes people fail to apply. Pat, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you on these, all these big themes. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it a lot. Mark, it's great to see you again. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>